At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm sure today will be another fascinating conversation. My guest today is current national coach developer at the FA and ex-professional football player, Warren Hackett. Good afternoon, Warren. How are you? How are we doing? Yes, sir. You okay? Very well, thank you. Uh, Warren, I'm going to jump straight into the deep end. Um, would you mind just sharing with us a little bit about your journey, what you're currently doing how you, and where it got started? So maybe talk a little about what you yeah. did to start with and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, so currently uh, national coach educator, uh, deliver on the A licence, AYA, um, UA for B, um, look after six clubs within the region, um, Charlton, Millwall, uh, Southend, Leighton Orient, uh, Stevenage and Colchester. So any coach that's on an award, I'd obviously look after and support to get through the award. Uh, and obviously any other, co- any other coaches from first team to under nines who need support in their development, then obviously I'll help them with that as well. So that's kind of where I'm currently at. I suppose the journey to that, um, I mean, I'm from, I'm from East London, so I'm a big West Ham fan. Um, football's been in me from, from day one, really. I mean, my dad was a big West Ham fan and took me West Ham when I was probably three years of age. Um, so he kind of gave me that sort of passion and drive for football and the love of the game. Um, so, yeah, so went to school next to West Ham football ground, literally a school called St Edwards. Um, so, again, literally as, as the players were coming in, in and out of the ground uh, during the week, you know, I'd see... The likes of, you know, maybe Frank Lampard, Terry Bro- uh, Trevor Brookin and Jeff Pike, those sort of players at them times. Um, and then when we could after school, we'd sneak in and maybe watch the odd reserve game. So, uh, yeah, so from a very, very young age, I've kind of had football around me um, from day one. Um, living not too far from, from West Ham in Plasto, um, again, I suppose started to play in the area with, uh, with lots of older kids developed my skills quite quickly by playing with older kids, sort of got knocked around a little bit and realised that, you know, you've got to be a little bit more robust if you want to play with the big boys. So I kind of uh, tried to adjust my skills accordingly to, to be able to deal with that. So, you know, places like West Ham Park and Plasto Rec were, were my big hangouts. You know, if you wanted to know where Warren was, he was in one of those two places and that was it from morning till night. Amazing. So, um, so again, you know, family background, um, dad's uh, English, Irish, uh, mixed race, mum's, from uh, St. Lucia, so very much a, a Caribbean sort of Windrush generation uh, with those type of family values, lots of people around, lots of music, football, sport. So, you know, that's kind of helped shape me as an individual. And then, as I said, sort of going to school um, next to West Ham Football Ground um, in St. Edwards. And then really picking up from there, really, we never really had a school team. Being a Catholic school, we never had a school team. So it wasn't until 11 that I was noticed playing for, for my local team, Semrab, um, who I was playing for for a couple of years now, well, well known, got obviously lots of players that come through that, through Semrab. Um, so Newham Trials started under 11s. So yeah, so basically playing for Semrab uh, as my first local club, I was then picked up by the, uh, the district manager for Newham and he just said, you know, what school did I go to? Would I be interested in some Newham Trials? Went to the Newham Trials, got into the team, um, and just went from there, really. As I said, I was probably the first kid in the school to go to Newham Trials because no one was really picked up on the radar at that time. So, um, yeah, so played for, played for Newham, played for Semrab. 
Uh, signed for West Ham under 11s, literally being picked up by playing for Newham. And I was there for a year. Didn't really have a great time at West Ham, I must admit. Uh, maybe I wasn't mature enough and ready for, for an exposure of that type mm. of football at the time. Um, so I came away from there, went back to Semrab after the year. And then just obviously tried to settle in my secondary school, which I then moved onto another secondary school from not settling. Um, so that period there, then I, I went to uh, Leighton Orient. And I went there for a couple of seasons playing in their, uh, in their academy system. And then at 15, I was picked up by Spurs um, and then basically stayed at Spurs until I was under 18. Um, was in a very successful youth team. Uh, won the Youth Cup, the League, Southern Junior Fladley Cup with the likes of Ian Walker, uh, Scott Howard, Neil Smith, Ian Hend and David Tuttle. So, you know, a real, a real strong group. Um, unfortunately for me, I didn't progress at Spurs. Um, lack of opportunity, I suppose. Lack, you know, pathway being blocked with the likes of Pat Vandenau, Mitchell Thomas, Brian Statham and Justin Edinburgh. So I think for, for me, it was always best that I was going to move on. So I then kind of come to a crossroad, really, with Ian Walker's dad, obviously sort of seeing me quite a bit with, by watching Ian. He was the um, under-23s manager at Norwich at the time. So he kind of approached me and said, you know, would I be interested in going to Norwich? Me being a London boy from the East End, I kind of went up there for a couple of weeks and I, I was so disjointed. I was... It was like being a million miles away from home. I laughed to myself and even my family. Now they're saying, like, what's the big deal? Like, Norwich is only a couple of hours away from London. Yeah. But at the time, as I said, come, growing up in East London, you know, no different. You know, so yeah. um, I declined the offer. But I only declined the offer because um, Frank Clark, who was Leighton Orient manager at the time, had spoken to me and sort of sold uh, Leighton Orient to me. And obviously Frank, at the time, obviously had been a European Cup winner in Nottingham Forest. He was obviously a left back like I was at the time. And he just said, listen, I've seen you play. I can see potential. He says, come to our end and I can pretty much guarantee if you continue doing what you're doing, you'll be in the first team within a year. Um, and I, I signed. Uh, Frank was true to his word, even though it didn't happen until four games at the end of the season. I managed to break into the first team very young um, and basically went on from there, really. So had four had four successful years at Leighton Orient. Had a serious knee injury in my second season, um, cruciate knee injury, which kept me out for a year. But, you know, really had a great time there, enjoyed my time, change of management, moved up north to Doncaster, done a year and a half at Doncaster, then moved on to Mansfield uh, under Andy King, who was a fantastic manager, uh, rest in peace, obviously he's passed away yeah. now. Um, and then moved, managed to sort of head back, head back down to, uh, to London and play for Barnet before, um, yet again, another serious knee injury at 30, done my other crew shot on my other knee. And it was the end of me, really, when it, when it, when it comes to football. Um, wasn't really prepared for ending my career at sort of 30, 31, but it happens and, and you have to move on. Wasn't really prepared, hadn't done my coaching badges. Um, but if I just flip back slightly and just sort of say, obviously, within the time of being a player, uh, I managed to uh, to play 21 times for St. Lucia, which is my mum's country, which was a great experience. You know, travelled loads, played in World Cup qualifiers. And then, as I said, I come to the sort of the end of my career and I really just didn't know what to do. Uh, obviously, I wanted to stay in the game. I had a friend who was in the security industry from school and he just said to me, look, I know you want to get back into football. Uh, come and kind of be in and around the security industry. You know, we'll show you the ropes. Um, so again, I went into to a security company in, um, in St. Catherine's Dock, stayed there for three, four years whilst I was doing my coaching badges, uh, was able to achieve my badges. And then obviously, during the period of doing my badges, I was in non-league uh, as an assistant manager at Fisher Athletic and Wolven Forest and Eric from Belvedere. So again, I was getting that valuable experience while I was doing my badges, but obviously needed to earn 
money um, at the same time, which is why I was doing the security. So again, I probably lasted in security for, I would say maybe six years. Um, and then I had an opportunity to go to Canada. So I kept getting invited out there as a guest coach initially where you got there for two weeks and you kind of crossed it into a holiday. You know, so the family came out with me. Um, and the second time I went out, they offered me a job, offered me a full-time job out there as a, uh, as a technical director for one of the clubs. So again, a fantastic opportunity. I hadn't really sort of, I hadn't sort of cemented anything here. I was still, I think at the time I may have still been a B licensed coach. Um, so again, it was a fantastic opportunity with my, you know, sharing my experiences out there in Canada, working with the boys and the girls in the academy from under 19 down. Um, but again, it was, it, I was out there for probably 10 months because uh, basically it's visa issues really. I, I had a working visa, but I wanted to take the family with me um, and it was just taking too long to, to get that visa. So uh, I came back and on my return, I linked up with one of my old teammates, uh, Wayne Burnett, who was the assistant manager at Dagenham Redbridge at the time. And he just said to me, look, we're about to start a brand new academy at Dagenham. Um, we've just gone up to League One um, and we'd like you to come in and, and be the academy manager. So I think the valuable experience I picked up with the position in Canada really, really helped me um, to start my role at Dagenham. So going into Dagenham was a real big challenge. It was just myself. We just appointed an administrator. Um, and basically that was it. So we had, we had no coaches, we had no players, we had no training kit, no equipment, no nothing. So, and I'm, and I'm really proud to be honest with you of what we've managed to achieve at the end of it, uh, even though the academy is no longer. So again, I think it was a real... When you talk about a blank canvas, you can't get any more blank than that. So going in there and, you know, ducking and diving, trying to get players from this club, that club. My old managers at SEMRAB and in and around East London, I'm trying to get players from. Uh, coaches, I was able to bring in some people I sort of um, played with or I knew, sort of people like sort of, um, Darren Curry came in and worked um, with the under-12s and Micah Hyde came in. Um, Daryl McMahon, who's currently manager at Dagenham, came in. Chris Perry came in. So... You know, we managed to get some really good staff members in. And, and as I said, the academy lasted probably five years. But I was, you know, we've, we've got players now playing in the football league, which is, which is a great achievement. Um, so that was kind of cut short in my, in, from my point of view because Wayne was appointed manager in, this, in my... So I two and a half years being academy manager. Wayne was appointed the manager. And the first, one of the first things he did was appoint me as assistant manager. Um, so I, I couldn't turn down that opportunity, even though I felt that I hadn't finished with the academy. I obviously wanted to support him and obviously it was another uh, opportunity for me to, to go again in my career. So I spent another two and a half years um, at Dagenham as assistant manager, um, which I really enjoyed. So Wayne, Darren Curry and myself um, was, the, was the management team. Um, and again, we've done quite successful in considering we had quite a small budget. Um, but ultimately, Wayne, got, um, Wayne was uh, relieved of his duties uh, towards the end of it. And Darren and myself, took over as caretaker managers for a short period of time. Um, John Steele then came in and was manager and then I, I basically departed company from there. Um, so coming out of Dagenham after being there for five years, which was a, a bit of a real change really, because I kind of think when you've been in the game for five years and you've been the academy manager, assistant manager and a caretaker manager, you kind of think that you're going to get a job easy. Um, well, I spent nine months out of the game um, and I had to travel the other side of the world to get a job. Um, and you kind of like you realize that you just can't rely on football you have to kind of be prepared to to have other skills and you know be prepared to to sit it out or crack on and graft and do something else so uh, I was doing a bit of scouting for Reading um, for a period of time doing first team reports and stuff 
and an opportunity came up just before. So I came out of um, Dagenham in the January and a role came up in India. Um, so a friend of a friend of a friend's called me, he was the manager of a club called East Bengal in India, um, which is a huge football club. I didn't realise how huge they were until I got out there. Um, and they offered me a, a contract to come out there for the season uh, to be the assistant head coach. But the role was kind of, and I, and I, and I agreed and I went, and this was in, obviously we're based in Calcutta. But the role was quite a real sort of hands-on role because the manager really just kind of really allowed me to do a load of the day-to-day stuff on the pitch, on the training pitch, which I enjoyed doing. But again, working with players from a different culture, we had six foreign lads from different places and obviously we had the rest of the squad was made up of Indian players. So again, from my point of view, I had to really adjust, understand the culture, understand the demands and the needs um, from what I expected and obviously what the players can produce. So that was a big challenge. But you know, again, we started off really, really well. Uh, I think we went the first 12 games unbeaten, top of the league. Um, but it just ended a little bit sour, in my opinion, because we got beat in the derby against a team called Mahan Bagan, who was obviously a huge team out in India as well. Um, and I think from that game there, uh, I think it was four games left, uh, I got suspended um, for, uh, for misbehaving on the sideline, emotionally attached. So again, a real learning curve, because in England, you can get away with that, shouting and honouring on the sideline. In India, don't tolerate it. Um, it's got a four-match ban. Um, and then basically my contract came to an end. So that was kind of the end of my, uh, my Indian, uh, India journey. So then coming back from India, again, spent a little while, spent a little bit of time out of the game, uh, maybe for another four months. And then applied for a role within the FA as a national specialist coach, uh, which I've managed to get. So I was the under-20s uh, out-possession coach for a, for a year. And in the second year, I was the under-19s out-possession coach. Um, so again, basically what you'd have is you'd have a head coach in possession, out of possession, goalkeeping coach. So, you know, I worked with some, with some great people. Keith Downing was the head coach for, the, for our team. Uh, Mark Robson was the in possession coach. And uh, Eric Steele, the former Man United goalkeeper and uh, goalkeeping coach, was the goalkeeping coach. So again, really good staff, really experienced, picked up loads, loads from them. Um, and then so my contract came to an end with that position. And then I was offered a position uh, as a national coach educator. So I was now at a crossroad again, really, where I've been in many different roles, like I've already discussed. And I kind of felt to myself, well, if I go into a coach educator's role, that's going to kind of take away the coaching and the passion I've got for coaching. So I had to start looking at like longevity and skill set and developing other skills, because if you want to stay in the game, you've got to have many skills. So I think by accepting the role has as probably rounded me and shaped me a little bit better than what I was just as a coach, because I'm seeing it from a a broader lens now. So I'm looking through the coach's eyes into the through to the players and I'm able to support coaches and share experiences that I've had within the management game uh, and within the academy system. So um, at the moment, I'm in a good place. I'm really, really enjoying it. I'm still evolving. I'm still learning. I'm currently doing my um, LMA diploma for leadership and management. So again, you know, the journey hopefully will continue for as long as possible and the learning never stops. So and hopefully I've not rambled on a little bit. There's a lot to cover, but yeah, kind of that's where I'm at at the moment. No, no, that's, that's fantastic. No, thank you very much for that, Warren. It, it is, there is a lot in there and I think it, it's definitely sparked a few questions for me and I want to take you right back to the start because there's, I think there's a lot to unpack in there. First of all, you talked there about, you know, starting off your journey, um, I guess, because of the influence of your father. Um, what was it about the game that actually caught you or was it just, this is what dad's into, so I'm into it now as well? I think the easy thing really was that, yeah, my dad was a big football fan. Um, so taking me to West Ham and seeing thousands of people go into a game and 
if you've been to West Ham, I mean, the atmosphere can be unbelievable. Mm. But then again, in the in the early-ish 70s, there wasn't probably as much, it wasn't, it was a very cultural area, but the ground and the people with inside it weren't very uh, multicultural. So going there, I mean, I didn't see that as a kid. I didn't see it at yeah, all. Yeah. But as the years go on, you realise, wow, you know, this has changed. So I was never deterred away from going to West Ham. I heard various abuse to players at West Ham. But as far as I was concerned, West Ham was my club and it's always been my club. So mm. I wouldn't change allegiances or alliances just because of racial uh, incidents that have happened within the football mm. club. Um, as I said, you can't brandish everybody the same. So there's a few sort of individuals who carry on like that. So you have to accept that. So I just think, and, and I think the, the big, the big um, attachment for me, I think was losing my dad quite early. So I lost my dad when I was nine years of age. And I think him taking me to football and me having that relationship with him, um, as I said, I just felt so attached to football. Then losing him, I kind of wanted to achieve, not for my dad, but I know he'd be proud, like, knowing yeah. that I developed and evolved in football, something he was really passionate about. So that was always a, a driver for me to think, you know, come on, you can do this. You can, you know, you're watching yeah. the game, you love the game, you can you can make a way in this game. You yeah. love it, you love playing it, so why not? So I think that was an easy driver for me um, to, uh, to, to to fall in love with a game, really. Yeah. I think certainly, I'm sorry to hear that you lost your father at such a young age, but I think, you know, that, that, that's what this, this, you know, hopefully this conversation will show and, and all the previous conversations that everyone's got their own journey and we'll go for different, different uh, ad, you know, challenges and overcome adversity in different ways. So you, you managed to, I guess, use the passing of your father in that, in that case, almost as, as a fuel for the rest of your journey and, 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 and I guess to achieve that dream of becoming a professional footballer. But I'm curious to know at, at what stage did you... You know, was it before your father's passing or was it at that moment where you said, actually, I want a career in the game? Um, I don't know, really. I just, I, as I said, I always played the game and it was mm. always fun. I always played with older boys. So I was always a bit more developed when I played against boys my own age. Um, and I suppose when you start going to like Essex, uh, Newham trials, Essex trials, and then you're all of a sudden you're within a professional environment, you're a signed player. I think you realise that you're not the name, maybe the normal average kid. You know, you've got a little bit of ability, so you seem to be moving places. So I don't know. I just, I suppose I was fortunate enough to be selected at various clubs and was able to have a reasonable career within the game. So, yeah, you know, you, you, you obviously start your journey at Senrab. Um, what do you think it was that was in the water in Senrab or in the air at the time that, that I guess brought them so much success? Because you've heard about all the players that have come through there and I'm sure there's a lot more than what would probably come in the spring to mind, if you like. Yeah, so again, so my, so my sort of recollection of Semrab was they were based in Bow, so a great catchment area for football in Germany, East London is. Uh, and I just remember going into the club and seeing the likes of Ray Wilkins and Paul Miller uh, on the wall, who were obviously at Spurs and, uh, and Chelsea at the time. So they they'd had a history long before I was playing for Semrab. But I think what they were really good at was simply winning. You know, they'd win any league that we'd enter, we'd win every year, and then we'd expect to win. And I think winning breeds um, confidence. And as you're going around playing all these other teams, our manager used to just literally just pick up the best players from every team. They wanted to come to us because we was winners. So I just think that was a real snowball effect. Mm. So it was an easy sell if your kid was nine years of age and you come from East London yeah. and then you thought that they were half decent, you know, they got to play for Semra. Um, yeah. and, and that was kind of the, that was kind of the, the talk of the, Semra were the talk of the town uh, and always sure. have been. I, mean, I remember going to, we went to the Isle of Wight tournament where you're playing pretty much the best teams in the country. And we went there and it was, it literally was a walk in the park. We just beat everybody and it, it was so comfortable. 
So we realised that there was a real, there was a real unity. There was a real togetherness. Um, it was very multicultural. Uh, you know, there was you know various black players, white players playing together, uh, no problems at all uh, within within the East London area. Um, and as I said, that's still going now. Not not as strong because obviously the academy system has taken over. Sunday morning football. So the best players will come out of the system from nine, 10 years of age. Whereas back then we'd all be playing for our uh, Sunday clubs until we're maybe 14, until we'd then go into professional clubs and play on a Sunday. So uh, yeah, but as I said, in respect to Semrap, huge club, great reputation and had great times there with, with great people really. Uh, now it's interesting because obviously you talked there about, you know, it was an easy sell because you were winning games and that you were just, I just built a reputation for that. So I guess looking away from the results now, because I think that's probably still the case today. It's very easy for people to kind of bring players in or make an advert out of it if they are, I guess, known as winning teams. How difficult or how different, rather, to start with, was it in terms of what the coaching actually looked like then to what it looked like now? And what would your advice be to anyone that's maybe looking for a, a club for their child or looking for an environment to go and coaching, but actually having to almost take a step back and forget about what the results are saying, but actually look at the, the depth and the quality of the coaching that's taking place. Yes, good good question. Because if you think about the players that come through Semrab system, and I suppose the lack of coaching that we used to get, it was literally, all I remember doing was going just playing games. Mm. We'd come in, we'd play games. I don't remember really being coached in any real detail. Mm. I go into some grassroots clubs now. Uh, I don't do it very often, but I still see it. I see a lot more coaching. Uh, I see a better level of coach with a better level of understanding. So I would say the game's moving forward. Players are being exposed to much more a lot sooner. Um, I think maybe with the academy system, maybe they get exposed too much and they're doing too much too soon. I think the fun of the game has gone out of it too much by lads going into the academies at under nines. In my opinion, if, if I had it my way, I'd probably get them going in there at later, maybe at 13, 14, when they're a bit more mature give them time to play with their friends, enjoy the game, fall in love with the game, and then take it on to the next level if they feel, you know, if they feel fit to or they're free to. Um, so, yeah, I think the coaching now is in grassroots has gone through the roof. It's, it's fantastic now. There's some great football clubs out there now. Very well organised, very well established. Back then, they'll be just like, you know, I mean, our, our manager was a, was a cab driver um, and, and, a very, and his son's a very famous player and everything. But... You know, he was good. He had a good knowledge of the game, but it was a, it was just a love that his son played and that type of stuff, um, which is why he sort of was the manager. But yeah, I would say you know the the the, the, the grassroots clubs now are a lot more equipped uh, to develop players a lot better than they did. It's interesting you mentioned that because you, as much as you know, I, I do agree. On one hand, they are they are much more equipped um, to I guess develop the players. But one of the biggest things that we've lost, and I think you've talked there about, how, I guess, how maybe influential it was in, in your generation is you were just given an opportunity to play. And probably not just at your club, but also I think as society has changed and you know, generations have gone on, I know certainly when I was eight, nine, 10, even up to maybe 15, 16, I was still playing out on the streets with my mates, yeah. um, playing football on the streets. And it's, inter- you know, it's crazy because now you talk about the academies, they're, they're actually trying to find a way to bring that into yeah. their own environments and earlier you know you hear about some academies you know really pushing forward this idea of street football and yeah. mixing players in the age groups and, uh, yeah. and all these different ways in which you're trying to bring that back do you do you think do you think they can really ever get that same you know 
outcome out of it or do you think do you think it's just all right it's just a, a happy medium of, of trying to get there and how 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 important do you think that that piece around the street football the authentic organic piece played a role in not just your development but people from previous generations yeah i mean society has changed i mean even as a parent now if i had a young child i wouldn't be happy with them i mean i was out and i was pretty much out in the street playing football at six years of age I wouldn't want my child to be out playing football at six years of age because of society, there's just too much that goes on. So therefore you pull them away and then you bring them into a structured environment mm. and then you lose the authenticity mm. uh, where, you're, where, you know, your six-year-old playing against a 17-year-old. And at times I was doing that. Yeah, You're not going to get that now. So although I know the academy, pitons have been, the academy system have been quite smart by bringing the mixed age groups together and also playing in cages, yeah. uh, they're, they're trying it. They understand there's a gap um, where people can be free, whereas they're playing in an un- uncontrolled environment. People are free. They'll try things, bring them into academy. They don't want to try those things because the eyes are on them. So mm. I know the clubs are trying to kind of break that barrier now. Will it help? Yes, it will. It will help. It won't be exactly the same because it's still staged. Yeah, uh, It's not a group of boys who have just said, oh, by the way, come on, let's go over to the park and play football. Yeah. Sometimes not even using a football, sometimes using a bottle. Listen, with, <laughs> with many of things... Down, even down to a sock, you know, I mean, yeah. a, a tennis ball, whatever. We just loved the game, a stone. You know, there was many of things that we played football with because that's what we love to do. Yeah. Interesting. No, I say, no, I find, I find it very interesting because, like I said, over the years, things have changed massively. Um, and you're right, you probably wouldn't want your, your young children out nowadays, but it's so difficult for now clubs to actually even put on a, a session in an environment that was deemed as safe because of the finances that were attached to it. The pitches aren't cheap, yeah. You know, so so many clubs are suffering from that perspective. But I guess you know, coming back to your own journey, then you know, you talked about going from Senrab, you got picked up and went to West Ham. You know, first one in your school because it wasn't really a big thing for the people in your school to kind of. So going in at West Ham as a fan, what 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 was that like? And what were you know, you you said obviously it didn't work out for you. What were some of the challenges you faced there that you then felt that when you went to Tottenham, things were really different and that you really I guess flourished in that environment that you didn't you weren't able to do in West Ham. What you mean within the academy when I first went in there yeah, as a kid? Yeah, yeah. I just think that, I mean, obviously I supported the club, so I wanted to do really, really well. Um, it's like, wow, I played for West Ham, you know, I support West Ham. They get me a little free ticket to go on a Saturday as well from the academy, and it was great. Um, I just think maybe at the time I just wasn't as developed as maybe some of the other boys within the system. Mm. Um, maybe I kind of, you know, there was a lot of dads taking their children to football where I had to get the bus and make my way to Chadwick to train or I'd jump in with someone's parent. So maybe the, the support mechanism wasn't around me and maybe I just didn't feel as comfortable in that environment as I did further down the line when I was a bit more older and maturer. So I've never really sort of put my finger on it because people always say to me, why are they, why did you go and play for Tottenham? You know, like, you, you know, why do you, why, why do you want to do that being a West Ham fan? But sometimes these things are not by choice. If you picked mm. up my club and yeah. Tottenham was a, a huge club and still is a huge club and, and I really enjoyed my time there. And I, I had no regrets, and I wouldn't have said, "Oh, I'd rather play for West Ham than Spurs," because I just felt a lot more a lot home within that environment than I did at West Ham. But I can't really put my finger on exactly why it didn't work out at West Ham. Mm. So just on that, then you know you, things have changed massively over the years, and you talked there about right at the top of the conversation that growing up, or you know, when you first got in, it, you never really saw colour, you never really saw those things as an issue. But as time went on, you started to notice actually, what I'm, I'm, I'm probably a minority in this environment. Yeah. You talked about your time at Tottenham and, you know, you had you had some good years there, but it, it never really worked out for you. So there were some challenges and some barriers that you faced. Were any of them down to that, do you think? 
No, no, I wouldn't. I would, at Spurs, I wouldn't say that there was any barriers uh, in respect of race. Uh, I didn't. I felt 100% comfortable within that environment. I think before that, maybe when I was in and around the Essex team, um, I felt uncomfortable. And I just remember going home and speaking to my mum and saying, Mum, I don't want to go anymore. I'm not feeling it. And I, and I pulled away from it. I actually didn't go anymore. I said to the, the school teacher, I don't want to play for Essex. I don't feel comfortable. Um, so I suppose at that point, when I was around maybe 14, that, that was the point where I kind of realised that mixing in different circles, mixing with different cultures, that was the first time I kind of felt outcasted a little mm. bit. Whether it was anything intentional from those individuals or parents or whatever, I don't know, but it just didn't feel right. Mm. And, and you know what? If you're in an environment you don't feel right, do something about it. I, I didn't want to put myself in that position. I think people have got a voice now, so they can quite and speak up quite openly. Back then, maybe I didn't have a voice, so the best thing for me was just to take myself out of that environment. No, I think that's a really inter- interesting thing because obviously there is a lot of situations like that where if people are made to feel uncomfortable, they almost feel like they can't say nothing. And yeah. I think you're right. I think nowadays people have got much more voice. I think there's definitely in the time that we're in now, there's a lot more of a spotlight on these things. And, and uh, uh, I think, you know, fairly mentioned there that a lot of the stuff that went on might not have even been considered or even conscious. Mm. Could have just been subconscious, could be biased that they don't even know about. And it could just be ignorance in, in some cases. But ultimately, yeah. you recognise that that wasn't a situation that you wanted to be involved in, um, and were able to take yourself out of. So I think, I think, I think there's a lot of credit um, due there in the fact that at such a young age, you was able to recognise and make a a mature decision, if you like. Um, yeah. You talked about obviously leaving Tottenham, potentially going to Norwich, yeah. um, not wanting to leave London. Yeah. Um, you obviously stayed in London with Leighton Orient for a little while. Yeah. Um, but then you've shot up to the north of England, Doncaster. Right. What happened there? Well, to be honest with you, I mean, I don't know. And, and, and you know what? I'm so pleased I did it because, um, as I said, going up north England, we used to play for Orient and we used to go up to Newcastle and up really far yeah. up north. I used to think it was so cold and it was dark and it was damp. But once I actually moved to Doncaster, it was, uh, I realised that the people and, and the place was, was great. So I think, you know, my time at Orient came to an end. It was a change of management, like I said. Um, and there was a few clubs that came in and the clubs that actually came in were, were all clubs up north. Sure. So I wouldn't say I had much choice this time. It was a case of, well, these are the few clubs that are interested. You've got to go. I decided to choose the one that was probably furthest north because they had the biggest potential at the time. Um, and I went. And as I said, I had no regrets. Lived in South Yorkshire and just um, in a place called near, near Baltry, which okay. was in the middle of nowhere. Right. Um, um, and I, to be fair, they, they treated me really well, the Doncaster fans and the people in Yorkshire. So um, well pleased that I made the move. Uh, it was short-lived. Again, decided, I mean, I, I wanted to kind of, I won't say move on because we had a good team, but it was just a bit of a bit of politics, basically. Mm. Um, and I ended up going to Mansfield, which was one of their rivals at the time. Mm. And I had you know, nearly four or five years at Mansfield, so you know, I enjoyed my time there. But yeah, no regrets going up north. I ended up living up north for five, six years and lived in Nottingham, lived in Bultry, so many places and went to many places like Sheffield and that type of stuff, mm-hmm. Leeds, um, and felt fine and felt fine. So what was the big deal about moving to Norwich? Well, what I was about to ask you now is that, you know, you, do, do you now, not to say you've got any regrets, but do you, have you ever think, right, well, what if I did go to Norwich at that, at that Yeah, listen, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Yeah. You can always think, what if? Uh, I made a decision at the time, I went with it. But yeah, at the time, Norwich were, were um, a Premier League team. Um, so, you know, might have been an opportunity missed. Who knows? But as I yeah. said, you can't rewrite the script. The script is what it is. Um, 
and you look at yourself and you think, oh, come on, that's really, really silly. But all I can say now is that I can pass that influence on to boys from inner, from the inner city who kind of are, are London boys and they don't really like to travel. Yeah. You know, I can talk to them about that and say, listen, you've got to go where football takes you. you yeah. know, whether it's in England, whether it's overseas, if you've got a talent, go and show people what you can do wherever it is. No, I totally agree with that. So did you, obviously you mentioned briefly, um, you then went on to represent St. Lucia. What was that experience like? And you know, having had the experience of now obviously working as part of the international setup with the FA and the England side. Yeah. Obviously massive differences. Sorry, say that again. Yeah, I was just going to say, obviously, there are massive differences, but would you mind maybe just talking to some of those things? Obviously, being a London boy, obviously, culturally, you're, you know, traditionally, you're, that's where your family from, the origins, origins are from the Caribbean. But was that a culture shock for you in terms of how they approached the game and how things were there? Or? To be honest, Jim Charles, he's, um, he's coaching in Trinidad now for a team called W Connection, which uh, like, they're like the Liverpool of Trinidad. Um, so he was my coach and he was such a knowledgeable guy. So I went out there and he said to me, um, We've been watching your games. Um, we understand, obviously, we understood your parentage. And as soon as we see you play, we just thought you'd be a perfect piece for our jigsaw. For our jigsaw. Um, there was a lad, there was a guy called Kelly Charlery, who used to play as well, he used to play up top. And there was a guy who linked me up, we played for Plymouth, a guy called Earl Jean, and he was the captain. And he had played against me a few times and said, look, we've got to get this guy. So I went, but as soon as I got there, the coach said, so I said to the coach, I remember saying to him, so, you know, how do we play you know, structurally? And he sat me down. I was literally sat down for about four and a half hours. And, I, and he blew me away. He blew me away with his knowledge and the detail that he went through about the game. And he said, like, we play, we play three at the back. But when you're defending, you're kind of like deeper, the sweeper. But when we're attacking, you're in front of the two on the outside of you. It's like you're, you become like a, a single pivot. I want you kind of changing play and, you know, making things happen from deep. So I kind of looked at him and I thought to myself, okay, this is a bit like, not, not, I've never played this before, but I'll have a go. Um, and I played it. I think our first game was against, uh, we played Barbados first game, we beat them 3-1. I was fortunate enough to score on my debut as well, which was great. But so I played the game and I just remember him at the end of the game saying, you know, what did I think? And do I think I can play that position? I was like, hell yeah. You know, I played it and I, was, I had a lot of pace back then so I could cover behind me. I suppose where I felt uncomfortable was that one where I was stepping in front. And all of a sudden, I'm in midfield and I'm trying to penetrate with passes, short, long, and, and controlling the play. So I had to really learn quickly because it wasn't something I was used to at Orient and playing younger. Because I was initially, I, I should have said at the start, initially I was a centre forward. And I ended up, by the time I went to Spurs, left wing, then left back, then ultimately centre back. So I kind of went right the way around the houses. So um, it was getting used to being that midfield player, calm in possession. Um, and, and starting the attacks off. So I had to learn very quickly, but again, settled in really, really well and really enjoyed my time and really enjoyed the position. It was great. So, I mean, I've still got a lot of family out there now and a lot of family was able to come to the game. And I think, you know, when you start listening to the national anthem, I didn't even know what the national anthem was when I went there, being honest. Um, but that sort of, you get that lump in your throat. All of a sudden, you, you know, I felt proud of representing my mum's country and my, and my grandparents' country with family in the stadium. Um, and yeah, and, and the rest is history, really. Just went on and managed to play X amount of games. And, you know, we had a reasonable team. We never managed to qualify for the World Cup. But at that time, you know, Jamaica were very dominant, qualified in, I think, 98 uh, or 96. I can't remember whichever year it was. And Trinidad were quite strong as well. So, and on the strength of that, managed to play, was picked to play for um, like an all-star game. So we played, um, we played against Jamaica. Um, before It was their last game before they went off to the World Cup in France. 
and we played in New York. We played in New, New York Giant Stadium. So that was a nice, that was a really nice sweetener, you know, being part of that, you know, playing with like, you know, Dwight York, Shaka Hislop, Stern John, those sort of guys in our team and beating Jamaica 2-1. Um, and as I said, I, you know, I, I speak even to this day about, you know, Frank Sinclair played in that game and he kind of done a little step over and managed to come inside me and put one in the top corner. So if any of you have come into a conversation with you, will always remind me of that. But yeah, again, so it was just it was just nice to have that extra bit of exposure for international football and to be able to do that. Um, managed to meet lots of people, travel to lots of beautiful islands in and around the Caribbean, even into South America, places like Suriname and that, them type of places. Um, so again, yeah, just a, just a great lived experience with it all, really. I definitely, I think it's, it's, it certainly sounds like an interesting one. I think for me, I've, I've always looked at it and thought, right, being an obviously a coach in domestic football as opposed to international football, the challenges must be so different. And you talked there about the system and, and how knowledgeable the coach was at the time. Um, it's interesting. I've had this conversation recently and the systems, they just, they just revolve in doors really, don't they? They come around, they come around, they go, they come back in, they come back out. Like right now, the fit, the in thing, you know, a couple of years ago, it was about having three at the back and then it went to, then it was a four, three, three. And then I, I've got no doubt we will soon, we'll see the traditional four, four, two come back up again as a general thing. Um, so it's really interesting because, you know, I think certainly growing up here and being a coach in this country and going through the coach education pathway here, we've almost been we've been given this impression, if you like, that this is this is home for football. This is where all the knowledge is, you know, sits um, and, it, and it can be obtained from. But actually, you know, you just talked about it there and sharing that experience with the individual that you, that you mentioned. That actually, there's knowledge wherever you go, and, I, and that's what that's what this you know this, this this show is all about. And I want to kind of maybe delve deeper into your into your own journey, and just maybe throughout that time, then, and throughout your journey as a whole, you know, have you have you is there any particular people or times that you've experienced where you felt like that was a real lesson for me? And what was the you know, what was the lesson that you picked up there? I think the lesson the lesson in St. Lucia really was. My mentality, obviously, as you said, coming from England, a well-developed football country, going to St. Lucia, I'm already doubting the level of quality of the players, the environment, the setup. And I've got there and I was blown away by the head coach and I was blown away by some of the ability of the players. And you realise that there's people all over the world who can play football. I'm fortunate enough to have that opportunity to be able to go and play in a real structured league. Some of the guys I was playing with wasn't. So we had maybe three, four players playing in the MLS. Trinidad had got a professional league, five, six playing there and then three or four playing in England. The rest were made up from local players. And I just always used to think, I actually remember bringing a couple of the local players over to Mansfield at the time, Sansom and the manager, Steve Park, and I said, like, you've got to have a look at these lads. Uh, they came, they found it difficult because it was just a, such a culture, a culture shock to them and the tempo of the game. But some of these players had great ability. So I suppose it brought them, it opened my eyes up to realise that there's great footballers all over the world. Uh, and, and if people were given equal opportunity, they'd be able to be as good as some of the players in Europe, um, in the States and wherever else. No, definitely. And so just, just on that then, you know, you, you talked about that experience there. You also moved on, you know, you talked about Mansfield, you know, Doncaster, and but you've also mentioned you had a couple of injuries for your for your for your career. One, what was that like not not being able to play? How did you overcome it? Because you said there were quite serious injuries at one point. Um, yeah. And then beyond that, at what point, because you said that, you know, you kind of came to Crossroads about 31, 30 as to what you were going to do next and whether you were going to have a career as a player anymore. So at what point did you start considering, right, coaching might actually be a route for you? Well, I think, I mean, I picked up a, a serious injury at 19 and I was out for a year with that. 
that that really really was a challenging time because as I said I've done I've worked so hard to get into the first team got into it established myself as a first team player then go and snap my cruciate um which probably took a couple of yards of pace away from me if I'm being honest with you I wasn't I wasn't a slouch when I came back but it took away that little edge, extra bit of edge I had um so then I suppose overcoming that I was ready to kind of pretty much overcome anything if you can come back from an injury like that watching the lads every morning go out to the training pitch while I'm going into the treatment room to get treatment to do rehab on my own that's a real lonely lonely place and that that toughened me up as an individual um so that probably helped me I suppose traveling up north you know being in being on my own at times um and just being able to deal with any adversity that came my way I think when I got the second injury although I wasn't ready to retire I was you know I was headstrong right I can do this I have recovered from one I can recover from another so I was kind of prepared for what was going to come and what that was going to look like but unfortunately for me I suppose age wasn't on my side and it just I just couldn't recover from it um every time I kind of tried to to recover from it, it I broke down I had a little spell with non-league so my contract ran out of Barnet it was the year they got relegated out of the football league my contract ran out I tried a little bit of non-league it didn't work I just wasn't the same player and then I realized at that point that if I want to stay in the game, I need I need new skills. I want to be a coach because I'm not ready to come away from this environment yet. So I suppose at that point there is is when the coaching kind of stood out to me that well, if I can't play, the next best thing is going to be to coach. But I realised that I needed qualifications uh, to be able to do that. That's the one you know you talk about quite you know in depth about some of the challenges and that, that you face with the injuries. But I think being able to overcome them is one thing. But there's a lot of players that don't actually come back from that. So you know, what would your advice to be to you, maybe those players that are dealing with those sorts of injuries or maybe those coaches even that are having to maybe support a player through an injury like that? Because we hear about it all the time where players have gone through these sorts of injuries or they've had some sort of setbacks and they're never really the same. And you talked about it very briefly there. You know, you lost a bit of pace and that. For some players, that little bit of pace that they lost or whatever it is, that little piece that they've maybe lost changes their game completely so they now have to almost reinvent themselves as a player and that, and that that's probably a massive challenge in itself so what would your advice be to players that maybe have gone through these injuries or are currently in the process of facing injuries like that and maybe those coaches that may be looking to support those players yeah i think from a player's point of view you know if you've lost a little bit of pace you need to potentially pick up new skills so as a defender you may have to read the game better um to be able to offset the, the extra bit of pace that you did have you won't notice it straight away. You'll come back and you'll expect to be the same. And all of a sudden you may realise, oh, wow, I did, what's happened now? He's gone past me to a bit easy. And then kind of as time goes on, you know, any good player will pick up new skills to try and overcome the challenges that sit in front of him. So there's so much expectation on that player. From a coach's point of view, you just can't put the pressure on that player too quickly. You've got to allow the player to kind of settle in and come back with no pressure on him and try and get back into his groove again. Because the second that you apply pressure onto that player, that player will try and obviously do all he can for you and potentially could break down again because of the pressure being put on him. So from a coach's point of view, be really patient, give them time to settle into the environment, make sure that they're obviously trained with the group a long time before they're actually looking to go and play back into the, to the first team environment, which obviously clubs do anyway. Um, and make, you know, make sure that he's in the right headspace. Psychologically, he's in the right headspace that he hasn't lost any confidence, that type of stuff, you know, just really make sure that you give the player as much time and focus as you can. Mm. No, definitely. I totally agree with that. So, you know, coming back to your own journey then, thinking about those initial thoughts, right, 
coaching might actually be a journey for me. Coaching might actually be a career. What you know, what was going through your mind at what point, and were you still maybe think, thinking about taking some of your qualifications while you were playing? Where did that come from? No, to be honest with you, I said my, I had my level. I had my level. It was like a prelim. That's what it was called back then. So I had my prelim. I'd done that when I was at Spurs as, a, as an apprentice. But then, as I said, I had nothing else apart from that. So I, there was no preparation at 30 to become a coach. I was just simply thinking about playing. I, if I had my way, I would have played until I was 40. Players now, if you know, I, I, I mean, my nephew plays now, he's only 23. Um, and I say to him, you know, got to get you on a coaching course. I'll tell you why, because it will help you with your game. It will help you see things and do things a lot easier by understanding the coach's perspective. I, t- I totally agree with that because even when, you know, I never, I never played at a high level, but even when I started out my coaching journey, even just, you know, playing recreational football, I felt it changed, it changed the way I played. Yeah. Um, at the time, I wasn't being coached, but it certainly made me look at the game differently and, and, and you know, I guess, reflect on how I operated best in, within the game. Um, so I guess I became more conscious about the decisions I was making, why I was making them, and how I could be more impactful. So I, I definitely would echo that and agree that, that it is a great tool for maybe young players or players of any age, really, to kind of start considering delving into, even if you don't want to go into a career of coaching yourself, but just to kind of help you, help you develop as a player. Yeah. So I guess, you know, on that then, how would you describe your own coaching philosophy? And what would you say the key, key, key I guess, influences on that? I think naturally being a defender, um, I would always set up structurally defensive first rather than attacking as much mm-hmm. as I used to be an attacker when I was in my younger days. So from me, from my point of view, I want to be organised structurally, um, deny the opposition space um, in behind us, in front of us and down the sides of us. Um, really sort of keep, keep compact as a group, but ultimately winning the ball back Go and express yourself. Attack with speed and purpose. And, you know, we we defend together. We attack together. Um, and a real hard working effort. Um, a real hard working ethic. And I think that just comes from my upbringing. You know, if I want something, I'll go and work hard for it. So my teams would would represent that. You know, a real hard working ethic. Able to go and express themselves within that environment, but structurally really, really organised, out of possession um, to deny the opposition any opportunity. I kind of would probably go with that. Awesome. So, well, you know, thank you for sharing. I want to kind of maybe take you back to your own journey a little bit more from a perspective of, you know, it's something that we spoke about very briefly off, off, off air here. There's been a lot of talk about it recently, in, you know, around, you know, especially in the last couple of years with the whole Black Lives Matter movement and things like that, in terms of how much um, there is a problem that needs to be d- dealt with. Um, it's always been there. I think no one's no one's uh, disputing that, but I think now more than any other time, certainly in my lifetime, there seems to be a more of a conscious effort to do something about it. So, from your own journey, your own experiences, would you mind maybe sharing some times where, where you felt that that certainly did play a part in, in I guess, limiting your opportunities? Limiting my opportunities. I mean. I suppose, I mean, when I came out of Dagenham, I applied for many jobs, didn't get them. Mm. And you look at yourself and you think, is it that I'm not good enough? Or is there another agenda here? Mm. Those thoughts come in my head. There was no evidence that that was the case why I didn't get a job. Mm. But all of a sudden you start thinking because you see other people who you look at maybe at the same level, 
lesser experience, but maybe their face fits and they've got a job. And then you kind of get, you start to feel a bit bitter. So I'm being open and honest. I don't know is the answer. Um, yeah. I wouldn't say anything directly. I can say, yeah, it was because of race. Yeah. Um, but I suppose the numbers speak for themselves. Um, there isn't enough black coaches. There isn't enough black managers in comparison to players within the game. There has been limited opportunity with that because ultimately the owners are predominantly white um, and people normally tend to go with people who look like themselves. Um, so that's kind of been quite obvious. There's a, there's a, there is a big shift going on at the moment. Um, people are more conscious of it now and people are being given opportunities. Mm. The worry is that opportunities are being given, but they're not, then there's no sustainability. So yeah. many of programs that are being created now through the Premier League from the FA and various other organisations, which is great. But my thing is now is once these guys have been given the opportunity to do that, and, and ladies, by the way, is that I want to see if there's any sustainability. Do they get a job at the end of it or is it just a two-year uh, placement where they're working in an environment and they're gone again? So for me, I'd look to measure that in two, three years' time to see if it's actually increased the percentage of the numbers within the game. And that's not just black coaches. That's you know, coaches of all ethnicities because the game is very multicultural uh, within this country. There's players of all walks of life within the game. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it just needs something needs to be measured over the, in time. But yes, there's a lot more education. People are a lot more conscious of it. And hopefully change will happen. But ultimately, yeah. you need to be good enough. If you're not good enough, you shouldn't be mm -hmm. in the job. So I, 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 you know, no matter I, I, what colour you are, if you're good enough, you should be given equal opportunity. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I, you know, and I've been quite critical about some of the programmes myself. And if we go back even to the start, you know, go back into 2012 when uh, Brendan Batson, in conjunction with the FA, launched the Coast Bursary programme, there was a lot of coaches that obviously applied for these sorts of things and, it, and got the support. But then there was also this big, loud cry of, well, this is positive discrimination. Um, so you, you're never really going to please, you're not going to be able to please everyone ever. So I think that, that's the first thing that kind of needs to be highlighted. The second piece is, right, the sustainability piece. So, you, know, you, you complete your two years or your four years or however many, whatever time period it is as part of a placement scheme or an initiative, whatever there may be. But you're right, what, what's happening after that? And I can't help but feel that there, as much as there's a conscious effort to kind of, well, on the surface of things, to kind of change the landscape of, of the representation across the different uh, roles right across the professional game, there's also this underlying piece where I feel like mm, with some of the initiatives that have taken place, they've not necessarily increased the numbers. I think what they've, what, what, what they've certainly done, in my opinion, is they've looked at some of the people who are in these roles already, maybe as part-time staff, move them into full-time roles, but not actually, if you like, for lack of a better term, replenish them with more diverse people um, filling those vacant roles, if that makes sense. So really, are you changing the numbers? Obviously, I, I work with, within six clubs. Um, and each of those clubs, there is, you know, there's a, there's a representation of, of colour. Yeah. So, you know, maybe three, four years down the line, there may not have been. So I, I, I am seeing it. I am conscious of it. And hopefully there will be change. Yeah. It's just on that then. So then obviously they've got these initiatives in place. What do you feel that maybe is something that is yet to be done that can actually take a positive step towards changing some of the behaviours and some of the, I guess, the thoughts that do exist when it comes to the, the lack of representation more specifically black black coaches or South Asian coaches and obviously any other ethnic groups? Well, I think ultimately, you know, the ethnic groups probably look at football and look at football coaching 
And at the start of their journey, they may think, what's the point? Yeah. Why am I going to be a coach? Why am I going to be a manager? I'm not going to get the opportunity. So we have to change the mindset of our own before we can influence the others. So we've got to have a clear mindset saying, I'm going to, I will be a coach and I will be successful because I'm going to get an opportunity now. Mm. So I'm hoping that the people who were, were kind of negative towards it and thought they won't have an opportunity, will have an opportunity now. And they'll apply themselves and they'll work hard to get their qualifications and evolve within the game. Yeah. That, that, that's the change that I'm hoping because I think that's really important. Yeah, and just on that then, so how, how, how much of an influence do you think has been that the landscape of even the players coming through at younger age groups, you know, they, they are becoming more, more multicultural. They are becoming more diverse um, ethnically. How much of an impact do you think that's having on the club's decision to actually say, you know, even in, in times where they may be a bit reluctant to say, you know, actually we have to buy into this because for lack of a better way of describing it, these people understand these people. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and like I said before, you know, people are comfortable with, they like to see, you know, my thing is coming through St. George's Park, I want to see someone who looks like me. Mm. I want to see someone who represents me. Um, and as I said, that's not a race thing. That's a, a part of being comfortable in an environment. If you're always that minority, you may feel less comfortable. And I've had experiences of that. So football clubs need to understand that, that, the, you know, the landscape has changed. So why wouldn't you have coaches of various cultures working within your academy? Because mm. you can cater for everybody. I'm not saying I'm going to favour a, a black kid more than a white kid, but what I do know is that if that kid needs to get on a level with me and feels that he wants to talk to me because he's comfortable, then great. You know, if a white kid wants to come to me and talk to me because he's from London, for instance, and I'm from London, then great. You know, but you should have a real diverse and adaptable coaching staff to be able to deal with a diverse, adaptable players, really. Mm, mm. So, you know, just to kind of move things on then, you know, I think it's a bit of, it's a bit of a, a tough topic to discuss because obviously it, it, people you know sit, take take a different perspective on it in so many different ways. So, in terms of your own journey, then what's helped keep you inspired and motivated to be your best? It's the game I love. It's the game where I feel that I've got a lot of knowledge and experience within. Mm. Uh, the big thing for me now is to be able to to enhance. The, young, the younger players of today to give them the best opportunity to support the coaches to then go and support the players to give them the best opportunity possible and to emulate anything that I've ever achieved so you know I've kind of felt I've had my time as a player I wouldn't say I've had my time as a coach because you know the, tomorrow you could get a phone call and you know you could go I'm not saying I'm going to but so anything could change in that respect um, but yeah I just yeah, I mean, yeah, they're, they're the factors really why I, why I do what I do. I enjoy what I do and I, I like to share and I like to help evolve uh, individuals, teams and, and, and groups. Mm. So let's talk a little more about, more about that then. So your current role is national coach developer um, with the FA. Um, for those that maybe aren't familiar with what that looks like, would you mind maybe just sharing some insight on that and a bit more around your approach to supporting other coaches because I think there's many ways in which it's been done there's many ways it can be done I know certainly mm -hmm. through my own coach education experiences um, coming through as a coach that things have shifted massively especially more so in the last 10 years and maybe more so in the last six years um, and, and probably we're going to see another massive shift now with the off the back of the pandemic um, where it was I know when I started my journey it was very much well I'm the tutor I'm going to tell you what to do and you've got to do it as I say and if you don't do it, as I say, you're not passing. Um, whether you've got legitimate reasons, whether you've got justifications, no matter what. Whereas 
I feel in some ways it's kind of shifted right to the other end of the spectrum. And I think they maybe kind of need to pull it back a little bit. That's just my thoughts. But from your perspective, what is the best approach? And as a, as a coach developer yourself, what's your approach in terms of how you build um, and I guess set the, the tone of the relationship between you and your coach mentees, if you like? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I mean, the most important thing that's wrapped around my job is, is about to, is having people skills and to be able to build relationships because without me getting to know the individual coach, I'm never going to be able to support him. So I, I would literally, it's a tough job being a, being a coach developer because I've got to adjust depending on the coach. Um, I've got to adjust depending on the club and the environment that I'm in and what their philosophies are. So it's really important for me just to go in and watch. I don't, I go in, I say, just be yourself. It's your environment. I'm, don't change the way you coach just because I'm watching you. Just come and show me what you do and be yourself. And at the end of it, I'd, I'll always say to the coach, like a, like a hot review, how do you think it went? And he'll say either, yeah, great, or maybe I didn't do this, maybe I did it. I say, okay, no problem. But more time than not, I like to film the session. So what I'll do is I'll go, I'll film the session, I'll cut it up, I'll send it to the coach. I'll say, you reflect on the session, tell me what you think, and then I'll tell you what I think. Mm. And then that's kind of the way I like to work it. Now, when I say I'll tell you what I think, I just give them props as to, as to this is the first part of the session. Did it link to the second part of the session? Mm. Why did you do it? Were the players engaged? Um, did you get the intensity you wanted? So general questions like that. It wouldn't be, yeah. that's wrong. Yeah. I wouldn't do it like this. I wouldn't do it like that because everybody's yeah. different. So if by me coming in and doing that to the coaches, I think a barrier get put up straight away. So it's very important that I'm open with them. I need to be honest with them because if they're not doing something right and I can influence it, then I need to. But it's finding the right words and the right way yeah. how to keep them engaged, to keep them motivated and just letting them know that I'm on their side. I'm yeah. here for them. I'm not here just to be an FA member of staff because yeah. back in the day, in my time, you were right. You go in and I'm on courses and it's like, no, stop, stand still. You don't do it like that. This is the way you do it. Well, my theory is if that it'd be quite boring if I did that with every single coach that they've got to be exactly the same mm. as each other. They'll all be robots or they'll all be mini Warrens. I don't want that. Yeah. I just want to influence them the best way I can so they can be the best of themselves. That's that's my approach with it, really. That's quite interesting because yeah, I'm... Just to share a bit more insight on myself, so I've worked as, as a coach educator myself in the last few years, working across the county FAs in, uh, in the grassroots um, environments. And I'm similar to you in that after the session, I'm very reluctant to give you my observations of feedback. Um, what I will do is I'll ask you to reflect on it, you know, what went well, the even better riffs, but then yeah. I'll throw in there some questions to think about. Yeah. Um, I'll throw some questions in to think about it. It's not to say you're right or I'm wrong. It's just, I want to, uh, not so much prompt you, but maybe plant some seeds for you to kind of start to look at things from a different perspective. Yeah. Um, and I found for myself that actually off the back of doing it that way, whereas initially I'd be like, well, here's what I think. Yeah. Um, but actually it's, time, it's not about what I think. It just doesn't really matter what I think. All it is, what do you think? And are you, are you, have you got substance around what, why you do what you do? Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, in, in the context of the FA, it's more, all right, here's the England DNA. These are the principles that we, that we follow. These are, these are the, the key fundamentals. Um, whatever you're doing, 
essentially, can you rationalize them against these fundamentals? Yeah. And for, for me, if you can do that in your own way, it doesn't mean I have to agree with it. I mean, I, I could still tell myself, you know what, personally speaking, I wouldn't do it that way, but I can get where you're coming from and I see where you're yeah. going with it. But have a think yeah. about this. Um, yeah. And I think that, that bit is key, but do you ever find yourself in a situation where, not to say that a coach is necessarily doing something wrong, but what they're doing is in complete misalignment to what they're trying to achieve? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I would, for instance, I'd go into a club and the coach is trying to deliver something and it doesn't marry up to their strategy, nothing to do with the DNA. I'd then start to delve in and say, how can you connect it? What's missing? This is what you may need to think about. So, you know, that's, that's I suppose, a skill of myself and been able to put my six different hats on for the six different clubs I go into because they're all different. Yeah. Um, and, and that takes time to be able to build that. That's just not something that I've gone in and, and done overnight. As I said, um, it's, two of the clubs I've got, I've only been in there since January, so I'm still finding my way as to exactly how they work because I wouldn't have worked with all the coaches. Whereas the other four clubs, a lot more comfortable uh, and I know what they're doing. Mm. No, that's quite, I think it's quite interesting. So I, I know I remember when I first started doing the coach education stuff. Do you, do you ever find that you, you get sometimes where actually, yeah, you're completely on the wrong track? You're completely on the wrong track. I need to stop you right now and tell you that you're on the wrong track. Only, yeah, that's happened once or twice, but that's not necessarily after the first set. That might be after the someone's second session that we've agreed on some action points. And then they've come back again and they've gone straight back down the same road. Now, rather than me letting go down that road and get it wrong, I bring them back and say, do you remember the action points we spoke about? You're kind of doing it again. Yeah. You know, can you, you know, you told me you was going to find a way to overcome these. You haven't. Let's go back to, let's go back to point one again. So that, that's not happened many times, but it has happened a couple of times. But then I'll feel that I need to do that. You, you need to know the right time to do that because I don't want to destroy the coach and his confidence. But at the same time, if they're going off down a road that they're never going to be able to return down, I need to pull them back. Mm, mm. No, definitely. I totally agree with that. It, it, I, I just think about some of the times I've interacted with coaches and that's been that's been the case. And it's almost, I think, coming back to what you said in the beginning, it's having the, building those relationships, but ultimately making them aware that actually you're not here for your own benefit, you're here for theirs. Yeah. So it, it's not about what you think, it's about, right, what do they, where do they want to get to? What are their goals? What do they want to achieve? And where can you kind of... Uh, not lead them on that journey too, but where can you jump on board the train to that journey with them? Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's a key piece, but you know, I'm, I'm conscious of time. And as we look to kind of wind down now, you know, I, I want to kind of maybe finish on a bright end and talk a little bit more about yourself and just understanding. So you've had a range of roles initially, obviously as a player coming through working as a coach, you know, academy manager, um, currently working as a national developer, national coach developer, What's next for Warren Hackett then? I think it's a good question because in football, you never know what's next. Um, I want to stay in the game for as long as I can, you know. So these type of roles hopefully will give me the longevity to be able to do that. But that's never to say that, you know, I go back in the firing line, as I call it, into a man where it's into a management role, um, where you're in a position where you could be in a job for three months again and mm. you're gone. Um one thing is, is that since I've come into this environment, I really enjoy what I do. So it'd take a lot for me to come away from doing what I'm doing. Uh, as I said, I really enjoy it. I enjoy working with coaches through, I uh, still like linking in with the players, but I just find that I've just, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm still evolving. I'm still learning on the job. 
Um, but for as long as I enjoy it, for as long as I do it, and for as long as I'm wanted, then I'll, I'll carry on as normal. Excellent. So then, yeah, just uh, if I gave you 60 seconds now, then Warren, uh, to leave the listeners with maybe a golden nugget or some words of wisdom, if you like, to kind of take forward and apply in their own journeys, what would that be? Well, from a player's point of view, um, you've got opportunities now. Take those opportunities with both hands. Uh, give everything, have no regrets, be committed to the cause. Um, because when you reflect back later, you think, why didn't I work as hard? From a coach's perspective, be your own coach. Everyone looks at Pep as the god and, you know, he's a fantastic coach, but we he's got the player to play that way. You know, work to work with the players that you have to evolve and improve them as best as you can. Don't just think, right, this is Man City, this is Liverpool, this is Chelsea, I want to play like that. Mm-hmm. So just look at what you have around you and what support systems you have around you, whether that's coaches or other coaches or uh, uh, s coaches or whatever, and just try and get the best out of everyone. So if you're in an environment and you've got three, four, five staff, utilise the skills of those, bring them together to evolve the team. Um, so that would be that would be another one in, in respect of coaches and just love the game, enjoy the game, you know. The game hasn't changed. It's changed, but it hasn't changed. It's still about putting the ball in the back of the net mm. and stopping it from going in the back of the net. It's just that, I suppose, we all complicate it with all these fancy ideas and fancy things that we try to do. But um, there's more opportunity out there now for everybody. Football's for all. It's not just for certain individuals. Football's for all. You know, men, women, um, gay, straight, whatever. You know, go and go and achieve what you can achieve and don't let anything hold you back. Amazing. And just on a more on a personal note then, from a, both a playing perspective and a coaching perspective, going back to the start of your playing journey and going back to the start of your coaching journey, if you if there was any lessons that you've picked up for yourself that you could go back and maybe tell yourself back then, what would those what would those be? From a coaching perspective, I would say that when I was at Dagenham as assistant manager, I was too emotionally attached to the game. So, I, and I had this conversation with one of my one of my colleagues yesterday. Um, the game would be going on, and I'd be kicking every ball, heading every ball shouting and bollocking on the sideline, you know, like I'm involved in the game. And it wasn't until I went into the national team environment that I realised that by actually sitting down and withdrawing back, I'm going to see so much more. Mm. You know, I worked with Keith Dan and it was really, really calm. And it was a calming influence for me. Um, and I stopped all the shouting and screaming on the sideline. Um, so my biggest thing is, it's all well and good being animated on the sideline and the fans want to see that you're attached and you're passionate about the game. But sometimes just withdraw yourself back. Know when to be in the forefront, shouting and instructing, but then also know when to draw back and just take it in and see that, have, open up that lens a little bit so you can see a bit more. And then it would hopefully then give you more ammunition and more tools to be able to then give back to the players to try and fix some challenges that may be put, put in front of you. Awesome. And from a playing perspective, going back on your own journey? From a playing perspective, um, No, just, I mean, I was very determined. I was a very determined individual. Um, you get knocked down, you get back up. You know, there's no other way for me. If someone's taking my place in the team, I wouldn't give him very long to keep that position because I'm coming back. So I had a real get up and go type of bounce back attitude. And in this game, the game waits for no one. So if you're not on form, you can be assured that somebody else is going to take your place. But how are you going to then bounce back to be better than that person again? So be prepared for the falls because there's many of them, um, but just be make sure that you've got the mentality and the will to bounce back. Awesome. Just on a final note then, uh, Warren. Hopefully, you know, it's not me wishing away your years, but 
when you do finally, you know, come to an end of your career, what, what's the legacy that you want to leave behind for the people that you've been in contact with? In respect to legacy, just that hopefully they felt that I was open, honest, uh, authentic, and I just tried to help, you know. So as a coach, I tried to help the players. As a coach developer, I tried to help the coach. Um, and I was just always open and honest with, with the individuals that I work with. As a player, I was probably really tough to deal with um, because I was very driven and I was a very opinionated as a player as well. Sometimes that can work against you, but I was always, it was always for the team. Yeah. It was just me being me because I wanted to win. Yeah. That, was, that was the simple thing that drove me and, and I suppose created my character as a player. Yeah. No, definitely. Well, it weren't. Thank you for being with me today. I really enjoyed that conversation. And there's some, there's some definitely key bits that I'm going to think about in my own journey and think about applying for myself. And I'm sure that'll be the same for the listeners and viewers. Um, just before we wrap up, um, if the listeners and viewers had any uh, questions or they wanted to get in touch with you to maybe find out a little bit more about your journey, is there any way that they can do that? Yeah, feel free. I mean, I can pass my uh, email address um, if people want to get in touch. Obviously, I'm, I'm a busy guy, but I'll, I'll make, you know, if, the, if, if I can answer a question, I'll answer it and I'll give you some advice uh, if that's what you need. Um, but yeah, I can share the email with you and, uh, and we can go from there. Awesome. Thank you very much, Warren. All right. You're welcome, yes, sir. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favourite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.